One of my worst nightmares during my years in school was exam period. Man, I hated exams and a lot of others did too. I mean, what's fun about cramming all your subject material that you learned during the whole year all in the night before the exam and then having to sit for two to three hours on a hard wooden seat trying to figure out if the answer was A or D? Well, today's story is about an exam that was done in ancient China. An exam that could turn someone's life around. That could turn a lowly poor guy into a rich and powerful official who could live life like a king. So much so that people studied for years for this exam and actually looked forward to doing this exam. Wait, they enjoyed doing a test? Man, these ancient Chinese blokes must have been crazy, I'm telling you. So then, what was this exam that was so fun to do? This was the Kerju exams, one of the most famous, or infamous, civil service examinations in the world. G'day everyone, I'm your host Stephen, and welcome everyone to the Bamboo History Podcast. To those of you who have joined us for the first time, I'm a Chinese-Australian that's really into Chinese history, so I started this podcast to talk about it. This will be a podcast focusing primarily on Chinese history, but I hope to expand into neighbouring regions such as Korea, Japan, Vietnam and Mongolia in the future. I would really appreciate it if you went ahead and subscribed to this podcast so as to help me boost my listener base. I'm so far just starting off in my podcast journey, so any support will do me a world of good. I've also got an Instagram page, so you can check that out as well. It will not only have teasers and updates of new episodes, but also bite-sized historical content that is too small to fit into a podcast. So please head on to Instagram and follow my account there for an extra load of Chinese history content. My Instagram name is at Bamboo History Podcast, and for your convenience is written down in the description box below. To all my existing listeners, my Bamboo Historians, Thank you again for your support and for being with me on this journey. I really appreciate it. Now, alright everyone, let's get straight into the podcast. The Kerju exams were a series of tests that helped the government recruit people into government positions. It was established around the 7th century and was abolished in the year 1905 and lasted over 1300 years. From our perspective as 21st century Earth citizens, This may be a foreign concept. Sure, to get a job in the government, or at least in the Australian government where I'm from, some stages of interviews might require you to do a test, which could be a general aptitude test, or a test specific to the job. But the Kerju test was different. It was a test that could get people into government positions anywhere using the same set of questions, and these sets of questions remained largely unchanged for the thousands of years or so that it existed. First off, we need to explore what existed before the Kerju exams in China. During the Han Dynasty, around 2000 years ago, government positions were filled through a combination of 1. Recommendations from talent scouts and 2. Ad hoc tests. In Chinese, this system was called the Cha Ju Zhi or Cha Ju. How the Cha Ju worked was if the emperor, for instance, needed a certain position to be filled, for example, someone to look after the grain mills. He would delegate someone to go to a specific region and work with the local officials there 
to search out people they thought would be talented for the job. It was basically like talent scouting. How these people were selected and then tested was usually based on 1. The knowledge of recent events 2. Morality and 3. Chinese classics. Once they passed, they were put on probation in that job and then after a period of time, once they finished probation, they would begin their work full-time in that position. This was slightly modified in the eras after the Han Dynasty. During the Three Kingdoms period, the state of Wei, spelt W-E-I, organised these government positions into nine ranks and then selected people to take up positions in these certain ranks based on their social status and morals. This method of selection continued through for another few hundred years until the Sui Dynasty, which began in the year 581. To our listeners, before I move on, you might have noticed a few red flags in the way of selection of officials. For example, working with locals to find talent, determining worthy candidates based on social status, etc. These metrics were all very subjective, and even though there were tests involved, lots of weight was still given to the recommendations that were made by these so-called talent scouts, rather than the actual exams that were done. I mean, I'm still puzzled, especially at the selection based on social status. Really, mate? Selecting someone based on how many friends they had? Kim Kardashian, in that case, would be the bloody United States president. I think some people would actually like that, to be honest. I mean, fair enough if you want to gauge a person's character using that method. But using that as your main metric to fill a position that determined, you know, the well-being of an entire country? That sounds very risky to me, mate. And guess what? I am right. Because under the Taju selection system, the people selected for top positions were usually all upperclassmen, whereas lower-class people got the lower-ranked, lower-status, and lower-paid jobs, even though their abilities might have been better than the upperclassmen. But things would change for the better. This unequal system was finally realised, and in the Sui dynasty, the Emperor Wen of Sui was like, that's it, let's make some changes, and decided to make some changes. He retained the talent recommendation Taju system, but he added a more structured examination system, starting off with three subjects to recruit people as officials, and in the year 607, the Kerju examinations were born. Kerju pronounced in Chinese as Kerju, means subject recommendation, originating from the use of testing people on various subjects to recommend them to office. This is in contrast with the earlier Chaju system, which in Chinese means to recommend someone from inspection or scouting. Anyway, the Kerju system expanded a hundred years later in the Tang Dynasty, where Empress Wu Zetian, China's only ever female emperor, in fact, added a military-based subject to the exams, called Wuju, which mainly consisted of archery, horseback riding, and apparently, weightlifting. But not weightlifting of weights, weightlifting of a large sabre. Apparently that sabre is in a museum somewhere in China, and weighs around 180 pounds. The Song Dynasty, a couple of hundred years later, further expanded the Kerju exams, by creating different levels of Kerju exams, ranging from local level exams, which were done in your local village or town, and they were the easiest exams, all the way up to the palace level exams, which were done under supervision of the emperor himself, 
and were the hardest. Obviously though, if you passed the harder exams, you would be assigned high level positions and hence higher pay and higher social status. The Taju system was also gone, although it was still common for people to be put into a job <coughs> through the back door. During the Ming and Qing dynasties afterwards, the Kurju exams had matured into a fully-fledged examination, which got tens and thousands of people into government office and into bureaucratic positions. So that was just a brief spiel on the history of the Kurju exams. You're all probably full of questions now, like, what, why, when, how, <laughs> relax. Don't worry, folks. That's why I'm here. The Kurju exam was a triennial exam, which meant it occurred once every three years. Sometimes, an exam will be hosted out of the blue if it was on a special occasion. For example, the emperor's 50th birthday, or something like that. But generally, to do the test, you had to wait for three years, and that's a long time. Where you took these tests as well depended on the type of test you were doing. As I mentioned earlier, the exams had been split into different levels. If you head onto my Instagram, I have posted an infographic of the different exam levels to help guide you on what I'm about to explain next. Everyone had to start off at the lowest level, the kids level, and passing that made you a Tongsheng or Tongsheng, which literally means a child student. Then you moved on to level two, the college level exam. And if you passed that, you became known as a Shengyuan or Xiu Cai, a Shengyuan or a Xiu Cai. These first two levels of tests were just done in your local area, like your local village or town. If you passed level two, then good news, you moved on to level three, and these tests were done in your provincial or state capital. And if you passed these exams, you became known as a Juren or Juren. By the way, these terms that I'm saying, um, you know, when you pass a level, for example, Juren, Shengyuan, Tongsheng, Think of them as titles that you get when you achieve a, a stage of a university degree, like doctor, master, and bachelor. And if you thought these weren't enough, there was a level four exam waiting for you. Level four exams were done in the capital of the nation, and passing that made you a gongshi or a gongshi. Now, if you had passed the level four exam, if you if you passed all of these exams, then you would get a shot at the level five boss level exam done in the palace, in front of the boss, the emperor, himself, or in that one case, herself. If you passed this level, you would become known as a Jin Shi or Jin Shi. And if you became a Jin Shi, you were basically an OG. You, yeah, you were an OG. You, you were like the best of them. You were like the best. To become a Jin Shi was real bloody hard. I mean, think about it. Firstly, these tests happen every three years. And there are five levels of tests for you to pass. That's a minimum of 15 years to become a Jin Shi. And that's if you'd passed all the other tests in one go, in your first try, which doesn't happen that often. And then when you managed to get to level five, that test was so hard that apparently only one or 2% of the test takers who passed level four actually passed the final boss test to become Jin Shi. So yeah, if you told people you were a Jin Shi back in the day, you'll get loads of respect, and obviously, you're given a good government post. But wait, there's more. Because the biggest OG was the person that scored first in the level 5 exam. 
first in the boss level exam, first of all the Jin Shi. And he, or she, I'll get to that later, was known as a Zhuang Yuan or Zhuang Yuan. This was considered the biggest academic honor in China, and you'd be showered with respects, gifts, the emperor would meet you himself or herself, and if you watch Chinese dramas, a parade around the city on a horse or a donkey or whatever. Becoming a Zhuang Yuan got you working straight for the emperor in the Hanlin Academy in the palace, which gave you the network and skills for you to rise up to the highest government ranks. In fact, the term Zhuang Yuan is still used in China today for anyone who comes first in a test or to a person that is a leader in a particular field of study or sport. Now, all of you must really think these ancient Chinese folks are crazy, taking exams for a minimum of 15 years, sometimes more. Sometimes people spend a lifetime studying and taking these exams, and only like pass like the second level, or not even pass any exam at all. The conditions of these test venues, you know, where they took the tests, were very tough too. Each test taker took their test in a cubicle, and there were rows of these cubicles, blocked off on all three sides and only exposed at the front. If it's hard for you to visualise what that looks like, it kind of looks like a bus stop shelter. Each cubicle would be guarded to prevent cheating, and test takers had to sit there for nine days. Did you hear that? Did you hear... Nine days. Yeah, you heard right. Nine days. These tests would take nine days. Obviously, you could leave for the toilet and to sleep and all that. But nine days. So next time, listeners, if you're complaining about your so-called <clears throat> three-hour exam, forget about it. Three hours. A three-hour test? Weakling. Real exams are done in nine days. Study and wait three years for an exam. Then possibly a month-long trek to the capital city to do the exam. Um, and then a nine-day test. Like, I, like, imagine if you were late for that test. <laughs> Get wrecked, son. And the people actually enjoyed these tests. Unbelievable, right? Considering many people retook these tests over and over again as well. Obviously then, the benefits of passing the test outweighed the inconveniences. For example, if you passed the level 2 test and became a Sheng Yuan, you and your family could be exempted of taxes and be waived of conscription, which means not having to become a soldier to fight in a war and die, or to do manual labour in a camp somewhere. Your newly acquired Sheng Yuan degree could also get you an additional income as well, for example as a scribe. This was useful to many people, especially in the rural communities, where many people were illiterate and needed scribes for administrative tasks. So that was a Sheng Yuan, that was the lowest level degree. So obviously the higher up you went, the more benefits you had. Now comes a really important part of these Koju exams. What the bloody hell was the content? I mean, what were all these people studying their asses off for all these years actually revising on? The questions that were given during these exams mainly revolved around Confucian texts, especially along the Si Shu Wu Jing, or in English, the four books and five classics. The four books were the one, Great Learning Book, two, The Doctrine of the Mean, three, The Analects, and four, Mencius. And these books consisted of texts and speeches of Confucius and his disciples, such as Zhengzi, Zixi, and Mencius, focusing primarily on Confucian philosophy. The five classics were five books written during the Warring States period, which was around the 5th century BCE to the 2nd century BCE, so around two to 3,000 years ago. 
The five classics were the classics of poetry, the book of documents, the book of rites, the I Ching, as in I Ching, not I Ching, and the spring and autumn annals. And surprise, surprise, these five classics were also heavily influenced by Confucius as well. For example, the spring and autumn annals was a historical recount of the spring and autumn period in Chinese history and was compiled largely by Confucius. So to sum up the content of these Koju exams, we can just use one word, Confucius. Yes, it varied here and there, but the questions that came up during the exam were generally revolved around the four books and five classics, especially during the later on Ming and Qing dynasty exams. To all the listeners out there who've just heard about the content and are now scoffing, going, huh, nine books to study for three years for the next exam? That's going to be piss easy. Well, I hate to break it to you, but these books were dense. Let's say, for example, the classics of poetry, which is one of those five classics books that I just mentioned to you about. The classics of poetry book has a collection of over 300 poems. That means you would have had to study 300 poems in that one book. I don't know about you, but I studied probably around 10 poems through all of my six years in high school, let alone 300. So to all of our listeners, studying for these tests was not easy. Also to my English teachers in high school, if we did learn more than 10 poems and I forgot about them, I do apologize for being a forgetful student. In summary, studying nine books for three years to do a test then having to sit in a cubicle for nine days to finish a test all for the sake of a better job and the chance of upgrading your social status? Does this sound like something you would do to get a job these these days? I don't know. The advantages of these Koju exams was obvious. These exams were largely impartial, made available to all men from every background, including foreigners at some stages of history, such as in the Yuan Dynasty. This meant that everyone from all backgrounds all had a shot of making it big and getting a good government post, even if you were from a low social class. And if you were from a low social class, this meant turning you and your family's status around. The earlier Taju scouting system that preceded the Koju exams was subjective, and the scouts that were sent to find talent were easily influenced by the local aristocrats in the area, who would influence the scouts to select the individuals that they had wanted for these government posts. On the other hand, the Koju exams were all judged equally by the examiners, so there was mostly no bias when it came to selection of people for posts. These tests also encouraged education and promoted Chinese culture and literature, and the emphasis on education in Chinese culture can be still witnessed today. The main disadvantage of the Koju system lay in the actual content of these exams. As I mentioned before, the content was primarily around Confucian texts, and this was largely unchanged the entire time these exams were around. It's like if I was doing a test 2000 years ago with the correct answer being the earth is flat, and having that answer not change for thousands of years, even though we all know people figured out eventually that the earth was actually round. That was another thing. These tests focused on literature so much it largely ignored subjects such as mathematics and science which as a result discouraged people from studying in those fields. And this resulted in a slowdown of scientific advancement for the Chinese, and they started to lag behind the Western world by the late Ming Dynasty in the 1500s. The Koju exams initially started out as a progressive system, but because it was unchanged for over a thousand years, it became outdated and archaic, and played a big part in stifling the development of the Chinese civilization. Moreover, 
Because the main school of thought for these exams was Confucianism, it discouraged other schools of thought and prevented new and innovative ideas from being created. The lack of change in innovation was perhaps the biggest flaw in the Kurdu system. Another flaw in the Kurdu system was not allowing women to partake in these exams. Ancient China was very patriarchal, and even though it was very advanced in its time in terms of promoting equality, it still failed to give women opportunities to express their talents and go for government posts. There is, however, an exception to what I just said. During the 1800s, the rebel state of the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom opposed the ruling Qing Dynasty government and established their own government in southern China, and with it, their own Kurdu examinations. Unlike anyone before them, however, and for the first time in Chinese history, they opened these exams for women. This happened in the year 1853, and educated women, frustrated at all these years of being overlooked by men, rolled up their sleeves and dabbed ink onto paper to showcase their talents and to prove the men wrong. And to all those sexist, egotistic males, guess what? In the year 1853, the first year the Taiping Kingdom opened the exams for women, a person named Fu Shan Shang got the title Zhuang Yuan in the exams. If you paid attention earlier, Zhuang Yuan was that OG, the person who came first in the boss level exams. And Fu Shan Shang, yep, you guessed it, was a woman. Ha! Huh. The first time a test opens up to women and a woman gets first place? That's a kick in the guts for all those men out there who thought they were the superior gender, lol. Take that. And kick in the guts it was, because clearly there were so many sore losers out there who had lost to a woman in that exam, that they didn't hold these exams for women after that anymore. Wow. Regardless, official history doesn't recognise her achievement because the Taiping Kingdom was a rebel state and therefore exams held by them were not official. But it goes to show you what could have been if they had opened up the Kurdu exams for women the entire time. The Kurdu exams were eventually faded out in the late 1800s by the declining Qing dynasty, who had suffered setbacks to the Westerners <coughs> opium wars, and began adopting the Western style of education. The Kurdu exams which was the most advanced examination system in the world for a long time, was now obsolete. And in the year 1905, more than 1300 years after it first started, these gruelling exams came to an end. I think the most important takeaway from this episode is that the Kurdu exams epitomised the emphasis that Chinese people placed on education, both in the past and in the present. There's a common phrase in Chinese that's called gao which means education is the noblest of all pursuits. And it also showed how effective the Kurdu exams was in promoting opportunities universally to people to study hard and to improve their life. The exams also showed us that nothing in life is easy, and to achieve greatness, you got to be patient, do the hard yards, and have an infinite amount of persistence. Ah, uh, so anyway, I, uh, I actually have to go to a test now, so that brings an end to this episode. Please subscribe to my podcast, leave a comment or some feedback, and check out my Instagram page at Bamboo History Podcast, where you can find additional Chinese history content too small to fit into a podcast. Details in the description box below. To all my listeners and Bamboo Historians, thank you for tuning in today. Hope you all enjoyed this episode and gained some newfound appreciation for doing exams, and I thank all of you for your support. 
I'm your host, Stephen, and I hope to see you all next time on the Bamboo History Podcast. Bye for now.